Uh, there is an outline in the bulletin. You can track along this message. Our passage is Psalm 119, beginning in verse 89. If you have a Bible, I encourage you to find that passage. And as you find Psalm 119, 89, and the verses that follow, I want to tell you about a man named Matthew Henry. Some of you may know the name Matthew Henry. My guess is that if you've heard that name, it's because of the one-volume commentary that he wrote on the Bible. Uh, many people buy this commentary because you can sort of get a comment on virtually every verse in the Bible, and so a lot of people have used this commentary down through the ages. I read some things about Matthew Henry's life this last week that were interesting. He was remarkably brilliant. In the scholarly world, some people look back on his commentary and think of it as a little bit simplistic. It's not simplistic. It's just a one-volume edition. You can't say everything about everything in one volume. And he was unquestionably brilliant. By the age of nine, growing up in England, that's the age of nine, not 19, not 29, not 39. The age of nine, he could read and write Latin fluently. And he could read his Greek New Testament without a dictionary or a grammar or any helps. So it's been a long time since I was in the third grade, and some of you teach school. I don't know if you can confirm or deny that third graders in ECISD are reading and writing Latin. They're fluent in their Greek. But that's not super common today. It really wasn't all that common back then. He was an absolutely brilliant mind. One of the things that Matthew Henry said on numerous occasions, both in preaching and he put it in print, is that when he was a young man, his father, who was named Philip, taught him an interesting practice, and it relates to Psalm 119. Philip taught young Matthew, every day you should wake up and whatever else you read in the Bible, you should turn to Psalm 119 and you should read one verse, not even a whole section, just one verse of Psalm 19 every day. Now, you can do the math on 176 verses and 364 days in a year. You can make it through Psalm 119 twice, roughly, in a year. And what Philip taught Matthew to do was to take that one verse, to read it in the morning, to talk to God about it, to pray about it, to spend some time meditating on it. Later in the day, come back to that very same verse. Don't move on. Just the same verse. Read it again. Think about it again. And before the day's over, come back a third time. Read about it. Think about it. Pray about it. Talk to the Lord about that verse. An interesting practice as it relates to Psalm 119. If you were to do that, you would come across some remarkable verses. There's some individual verses in Psalm 119 that stand out to us, and we remember them apart from the rest of the psalm and apart from the other verses in that particular stanza where that verse might be located. I'll be honest with you this morning. My number one favorite verse in Psalm 119, although there's some really good individual ones, my very favorite verse in Psalm 119 is verse 89 that says, Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. And so we're going to try to make sense of that verse and this stanza together this morning. What we're dealing with here is a poem. It's an acrostic poem. You know this if you've been with us the last few weeks. 22 sections or stanzas. Each one has eight verses. There's 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. We're on the 12th stanza. So we're on the 12th letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It's the letter Lamed. And so if you open your Hebrew 
uh, scriptures, you'll find the first letter of the first word in each of the lines of this section is the Hebrew word lamed. makes an L sound as you think about transliterating this or translating this into English. There are 176 verses total in Psalm 119. Almost all of them make reference to the Word of God, the written Word of God. Almost all of them. I just want to acknowledge a couple of things if your Bible is open. Last week, Corey preached, and he brought us up to the halfway point in Psalm 119. The halfway point is right there in between verse 88 and verse 89. And Corey pointed out to you last week, rightly, that verse 84 is the first verse in the front half one verse, verse 84 out of the first 88, that does not contain a reference to the written Word of God. Some people, because they get uncomfortable with a verse being left out, type A people, they say there's got to be one in there somewhere. And they look at this word in verse 84, judge. When will you judge those? And some people say that's the reference to the written Word of God, but it's not. Corey was right in what he presented to you last week. That word judge in verse 84 is a verb, and all of the references to the Word of God in Psalm 119 are nouns. So verse 84, Corey was right, does not contain a reference. So we made it through the first half of Psalm 119 with one verse missing a reference to the Word of God. Now, this morning, we start the second half of Psalm 119, and right out of the gate, we have two verses in this stanza that do not contain a reference to the written Word of God. And if your Bible's open, you can cheat and look ahead at verse 90 and verse 91. There are people who point to the word faithfulness in 90 and the word appointment in 91 and say maybe those are the references to the written Word of God. But when you read those verses in context, they are not references to the written Word of God. They're references to God's work in creation. And so we need to introduce a theological concept this morning that we've talked about so far, but we just need to be clear on it in this stanza, this Lamed stanza. Theologians, Christian theologians, often make a distinction between two types of revelation, two different ways that God reveals Himself to human beings. One way that God reveals Himself, theologians call general revelation. And the second way that God reveals Himself, theologians describe as special revelation. Just in the broadest terms possible, general revelation is God making Himself known in creation, in the things that He has made. In the world, the stars, the mountains, the oceans, molecules, atoms, the design of the universe, little bitty tiny things, great giant things, in all of it, the Bible says you can see evidence that there's a designer and a creator behind it. For example, in Psalm 19, not 119, 19, David says that the skies and the stars reveal the glory of God, and they proclaim the handiwork of God. David looked up at the, the stars in the sky, and David understood somebody made those stars. And whoever made them was really big and really powerful. This is the same point Paul makes in Romans chapter 1. 
Paul says in Romans 1, every person can look at the things that have been created, the things that exist in the world, and you have undisputable proof that there is a God and that He's powerful and that He is the creator of all of these things. It's undeniable. And yet, Paul says in Romans 1, we deny it and we ignore it. And rather than give credit and glory and honor to the Creator, we give credit and glory and honor to the creation. We are idolaters at heart. But our tendency to ignore what God has made plain in the world through general revelation doesn't change the fact that God has revealed to all people the fact that there is a God and that they ought to serve Him. That's general revelation. It shows you that there is a God and that He's the Creator. If you want to know who He is and what He's like, and if you want to know what He's done to save sinners through sending His Son, Jesus, and if you want to know what's coming in the future in terms of redemptive history, you need more than a telescope or a microscope. You need more than a sunset or a breathtaking view. You need special revelation. You need the written Word of God in which God speaks to His people and He tells His people who He is, what He's like, and all that He's done to save us through His Son. So that brings us to the big idea of this particular section. The unchanging Word of God proclaims a message of salvation. A message of salvation. God's Word is unchanging. It's unchanging. And in God's unchanging Word, what you find is a message of salvation. What do you find in general revelation? You find testimony to the fact that there is a God, and He is the Creator, and you should honor Him. That's about it. What is it that you find in special revelation in God's Word? Well, according to this stanza, the unchanging Word of God proclaims a message of salvation. So take your copy of the Scriptures and we'll read together. Psalm 119. Beginning in verse 89, you follow along as I read. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You have established the earth and it stands fast. By your appointment they stand this day, for all things are your servants. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have given me life. I am yours. Save me, for I have sought your precepts. The wicked lie in wait to destroy me, but I consider your testimonies. I have seen a limit to all perfection, but your commandment is exceedingly broad. Father, we stop this morning to recognize you as the creator. We see evidence of this undeniable evidence in the things that have been created. Father, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us, not only through the created order, through the universe, but also through the scriptures. And we pray this morning that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear truth from the scriptures. Lord, give us a steadfast conviction that forever your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus our Lord and Savior. Amen. 
This morning, we just want to ask and answer two questions relating to this stanza. The first question we're going to spend a bit more time on than the second, so if you're prone to watch the clock, don't panic. We'll spend a little more time on the front end, and we'll move quickly through the, the second question. Question number one, what does the Lamed stanza teach the people of God about the unchanging nature of God's Word? What do we see here about the unchanging nature of God's Word? The first truth is this, the psalmist uses multiple words to emphasize the unchanging nature of God's Word. And I just want you to see here grammatically how the psalmist have, has crafted this opening verse to emphasize the certainty that God's Word is unchanging. So look with me at this verse. Strip all the uh, addresses out and the uh, prepositional phrases and the introductory phrases. The core of verse 89 is the statement, Your Word is firmly fixed. Your word is firmly fixed. If you look this up in the Hebrew, firmly fixed is one word. And putting it into English, the translators didn't feel like fixed was strong enough to communicate what that word means. So they translated it as two words. Your word is firmly fixed. But that's not all the psalmist says. He says, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. The heavens, the place where moth and rust won't destroy, the place where thieves can't break in and steal, the place that is safe from uh, our ability to tamper with what God's Word says. It is firmly fixed in the heavens. But that's not all the psalmist says. He says, forever, O Lord, your Word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Going all the way back to the beginning, eternity past, going all the way forward into the future, eternity future, that's forever, both directions, forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. If you're here this morning and you're reading out of the King James Version, I think the King, King James reads, thy word, O Lord, forever is settled. It's settled in the heavens. Forever. So I just want you to note with me a couple of points of contrast between us and the unchanging Word of God. Some of these are right here in Psalm 119. Others I'll show you on the screen. One of the verses Corey talked about last week was verse 83. Psalm 119, 83, just right above. The psalmist says, I've become like a wineskin in the smoke. A smoked, dried out, cracked, brittle, useless, worthless wineskin. Live long enough, you'll feel like that. In contrast, God's Word is forever firmly fixed in the heavens. It doesn't wear out. Look at what the psalmist said in Psalm 90, reflecting on his life. He said, all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. <sighs> That's our life in the grand scheme of things. Just a sigh. The years of our life are 70 or by reason of strength 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone. 
and we fly away. If you were with us on Wednesday nights not that long ago, we worked through the book of Ecclesiastes, and we talked about this idea. In the book of Ecclesiastes, it's the word hebel, smoke. Our lives are a mist. They are a vapor. They are a sigh. They are a breath. They are abundantly short. In contrast to the Word of God that forever is firmly fixed in the heavens. Look at how the prophet Isaiah describes this contrast. Isaiah 40. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely, you understand the comparison here? Surely people are the grass. He's really not talking about grass. You understand that? He's talking about you and me. We're like the grass. How so? Well, we're here today, we're gone tomorrow. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. I think Isaiah had read Psalm 119.89. Maybe it was his favorite verse in all of Psalm 119. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Back in 2006, Brooke and I still lived in Louisville, Kentucky. I had finished one degree program at Southern Seminary. I was just getting ready to start another one. It was the beginning of a new semester, August 2006. We had a chapel service. It wasn't just a regular chapel service, but it was a convocation service, the first chapel service of the semester. The president of the school, Dr. Albert Moeller, who's still the president, spoke at that chapel service. It was one of a handful of sermons that I remember very, very vividly. And yes, as a pastor, I understand you forget most of the sermons you hear, but maybe a few you hang on to and things really stick with you. This is one that stuck with me. Dr. Moeller's text in this sermon, August 2006, was one verse. Psalm 119, verse 89. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. And at the beginning of that semester, one of the things he talked about, in addition to all of the change that has taken place in the world over the last 50, 100 years, was the fixed nature of God's Word. And the fixed nature of what we teach and believe and proclaim, both at our seminaries, ideally, and in our churches, ideally. Here's a quote from the sermon from Dr. Moeller, August, I put 2016, it's really 2006. He said, our actual ambition is to hold to and to believe, and to contend, and to teach truths handed down in the first century from Jesus to the apostles and from the apostles to the church. We could dial that even further backwards than Jesus, couldn't we, as we think about Psalm 119, as we think about the Old Testament. Our aim as a church is to hold to and to believe and to contend for and to teach truths that are literally thousands of years old. We change our wardrobes seasonally. We keep the message forever. Why? Psalm 119.89 explains it. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. In that sermon, Dr. Moeller made reference to a man you may have heard of named W.A. Criswell. W.A. Criswell was a longtime pastor of First Baptist Church in Dallas. And almost 30 years earlier to the day, uh, W.A. Criswell had preached in the very same chapel that we were sitting in, Southern Seminary Chapel. And Dr. Criswell, as he preached, had one verse as his text, Psalm 119, 
verse 89. Now, Criswell was an older gentleman than all of us in this room. And as older generations tended to do at that time, he was reading out of the King James Version. And so when he preached in chapel that day, he read over and over again the verse, Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in the heavens. Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in the heavens. I like what Chris will had to say. If the word of God is settled, that settles it. And that's right for us as Christian people. If the word of God says a thing, that settles it. We don't need to have debate over it. We don't need to have discussion over it. We don't need to have argument over about it. We don't need to be upset about it. If the Word of God is settled, that settles it. Because God's Word is firmly, forever, fixed in the heavens. So notice a few more truths here on this Lamed stanza. What does this stanza teach us about the unchanging nature of the Word of God? Secondly, it teaches us Uh, that the created order highlights the unchanging nature of God's Word. In other words, you can look at the things that have been created and you see a reminder, you see an illustration of the fixed nature of God's Word. And these are the two verses where the psalmist doesn't reference special revelation. He doesn't reference the Word of God. It's verse 90 and 91, and he's talking about creation. Verse 90, he says, "...your faithfulness endures to all generations." Here's how Hebrew poetry often works. It's parallel. So how do we know that God's faithfulness endures to all generations? Well, the next line tells you how we know that. You've established the earth and it stands fast. How do you know that God's faithful? Did the sun come up today? Is gravity holding you down on the earth? God's faithful. You created the earth and it stands fast. You're faithful. That's general revelation. Verse 91, by your appointment they stand this day. What stands? The things that God has created. By God's appointment, those things stand and they're established and they're certain. All things, the psalmist says, are your servants. When you wake up in the morning and the sun comes up in the east, just like it has always done every day, From the beginning. You ought to see that and you ought to understand God's word is kind of like that. It endures. There's a fixedness to it, a certainty to it. When the seasons change, like they always do, sometimes in Odessa you feel like summer's never going to end. Sometimes you go into fall and then you go back to summer. But eventually you go to fall and then winter and then spring and then summer. When you see the consistency of that, year after year, you ought to be reminded the Lord is faithful. The things that He's created are standing and holding fast. And His Word is forever firmly fixed in the heavens. Let's bring it home to just life in Odessa, Texas. I have a prediction to make about next July. Are you ready? It's going to be hot. It's going to be like 180 degrees. It's not going to rain. And when that happens, I don't want you to think that I'm some kind of prophet. I just want you to look at the fixed nature of what has been created and say, you know, that kind of reminds me that God is faithful and His Word is unchanging. His Word is unchanging. 
When we get to the spring and we start hoping for thunderstorms, they'll pop the little radar thing on the screen. There'll be a big green blob moving right towards Odessa. What's it going to do? North and south, about big spring, comes back together. When that happens over and over and over again, you say, yeah, things are just working the way God intended them to work. Odessa's not intended to get rain. God's faithful. His creation is standing fast. The sun is coming up. The seasons are changing. It's hot. It's cold. God's faithful, and His Word is unchanging. General revelation teaches you something about special revelation. One last truth here. What does the Lamed stanza teach the people of God about the unchanging nature of His Word? The psalmist concludes that God's Word is perfect. He says it in poetic fashion in verse 96. I've seen a limit to all perfection, but your commandment is exceedingly broad. Remember, this is poetry. And I think what the psalmist is reflecting on is that there are all sorts of things in life that he sees and experiences that are wonderful. Might even call them perfect. But there's a limit to them. Sunrises are beautiful in West Texas, aren't they? Sunsets, how long do they last? Not long. Not long. Children are young and they're small. How long do they stay young and small? Not long. They get big, quick. Yesterday, our family had a a morning where we had a senior volleyball game, a a last home volleyball game. Then we had a 14-year-old birthday party. And you know if you have kids, it seems like just days ago, they're running around at your knees. And now they're talking about college and they're talking about driver's permits, and you say, there's a limit to these things. They don't last forever. Even the best marriages, the best marriages, they don't last forever. We pledge ourselves to a spouse until death parts us. And on this side of eternity, death will always part us. There's some amazing things you experience in life, but there's a limit to all perfection. In contrast to that, the psalmist looks at God's Word and he says, Your commandment is exceedingly broad. That's a poetic way of saying there's no limit to your Word. There's a limit to everything I experience in this life, but there's no limit to your Word. It's unchanging. It's perfect. And it endures forever. It's settled in the heavens. It's firmly fixed in the heavens. Now look, I have another question for us to wrestle with. Before we just rush off, let's just think about applying this truth and what it might mean for us in a few concrete examples. When the Bible speaks about God's character, His attributes, who He is and what He's like, it's an old book. It doesn't need to be updated to fit the sensibilities of postmodern people who read it and don't like what it says. It is firmly fixed forever in the heavens. And when this book speaks about our sinfulness and our wretchedness and our depravity, it's an old book. It does not need to be updated to accommodate a therapeutic worldview that says we have to affirm everyone as is and that no one can pass any judgment on any behavior. 
forever is firmly fixed in the heavens. And when this book says things about human relationships, male, female, marriage, gender, sexuality, it's an old book. It doesn't need to be updated to fit the fancies of people who are living out the wildest extremes of the sexual revolution from the 60s. Because it's firmly forever fixed in the heavens. And when this book speaks about church and what we ought to do when we gather together and how we ought to think about leadership and what our mission and our purpose ought to be, you and I don't need to update this old ancient book to make it relevant to people in 21st century United States of America. The things written in this book are firmly, forever fixed in the heavens. And when this book talks about the exclusivity of the gospel, the only way that a person can be brought into a right relationship with God, and postmodern people throw their hands in the air and say how narrow-minded, how bigoted, how arrogant that you think you have absolute truth, you and I understand that while this book might upset people, it doesn't need to be updated to suit the beliefs of people who don't even believe in the existence of truth, period. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in the heavens. To quote Criswell, if God's word is settled, that settles it. Question two. What does the Lama stanza teach us about the message of salvation? We'll talk about these quickly. Number one, salvation does not prevent all experiences of affliction and persecution. The psalmist speaks about affliction in verse 92. We've seen that word repeatedly in Psalm 119. Talks about being persecuted in verse 95. The wicked are lying in wait to destroy him. Any religious teacher who sets in front of you a path of life that guarantees no affliction, no persecution, no suffering, no hardship, no sorrow, no pain, no loss, no sickness, they're a false teacher. And you run from it, and you run to the Word of God, and you run to a book that has an incredible message of salvation, but that never promises that none of those challenging things will happen to you in this life. In fact, it assures you that all of those things will be your lot in this life, on this earth, on this side of eternity. So yes, there's a message of salvation here. It's not the kind of salvation that saves you from every experience of earthly trouble. Secondly, what does it teach us about salvation? Salvation results in life and a relationship with the Lord. True life, eternal life, spiritual life, and a restored relationship with God. Verse 93 I will never forget your precepts. By them you have given me life. God's word brings life. Jesus promised his followers life, eternal life, abundant life. The salvation that we're talking about is an, an eternal kind of life that you receive now and that lasts forever. 
And it's a restored relationship with the Lord. Look at the beauty of verse 94. I am yours. I'm not sure you could come up with a more un-American sentiment. Americans want to say, I'm mine. I'm the center. I'll decide. I'll be the judge. No one else over me. I'm the authority. The psalmist just acknowledges the truth and he says, I'm yours. I belong to you. You made me. I belong to you because you're the creator. Look what he says next. I am yours. Save me. Can't save myself. You made me and you alone can save me. And if you do that, I'm doubly yours. I'm yours by right of creation and I'm yours by right of salvation. I'm not my own. I belong to you. We teach our kids and our youth uh, something called the New City Catechism on Wednesday nights in summer, and we've used it at summer camps. It's a question and answer uh, form of teaching to help kids understand theological truths. And the very first question and the very first answer in that catechism says this, what is our only hope in life and death? That we're not our own, but we belong body and soul both in life and death to God and to our Savior Jesus Christ. What's our hope? It's not the American hope that I'm my own. It's the biblical hope that I'm God's. I'm yours, the psalmist said, save me. One last truth. What does this stanza teach us about the message of salvation? We're going to jump forward to the New Testament here. As the fulfillment of the law and prophets, Jesus Christ offers us eternal life and a restored relationship with God. On the whole, Psalm 119 is about God's special revelation, His Word, written Scripture. You understand that some 2,000 years ago, there was a Jewish man from Nazareth, of all places, Nazareth, who preached a sermon that we call the Sermon on the Mount. And at the beginning part of that sermon, Jesus, the carpenter from Nazareth, said to His disciples, I have not come to abolish the Scriptures, the Law and the Prophets. I've come to fulfill them. And none of them are going to pass away until all of it is accomplished. Jesus came to do that. He came to be the second Adam. The first Adam sinned and brought a curse on creation. Jesus, as the second Adam, came to be obedient and to bear that curse that we would not have to. Jesus is the son of Abraham, the one who came to bring blessing to the entire world. Think about Abraham's son and his life, Isaac. Together, Abraham and Isaac learned in dramatic fashion that on the mountain of the Lord, a sacrifice would be provided. Jesus came to be that sacrifice. He came to fulfill that scripture. Jesus came to be the Passover lamb, the one who would die as a sacrifice, whose blood would be shed as a covering for us so that death could pass over us. Jesus came to be the son of David, the one who would rule on a throne forever. But before that would happen, he came to be the suffering servant of Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 53, the one who was crushed for our iniquities and who carried our sins. 
When we take the Lord's Supper together, what we're celebrating is Jesus fulfilling and accomplishing everything written in the Law and the Prophets and the Psalms. Jesus living a life of perfect obedience. Jesus dying a sacrificial death. Jesus being raised three days later from the dead. And Jesus promising to come back for His church. We're celebrating the hope that we have as believers that when Christ returns, we will eat this supper with Him and we'll drink it with Him new in His kingdom. And until that day comes, we proclaim the gospel through this celebration of the Lord's Supper in eating the bread, drinking the cup, remembering the body of Christ broken, the blood of Christ spilled, that we would have life and that we would have a relationship with the Father. So if you're a follower of Jesus and you've been obedient to his command to be baptized, we invite you to celebrate the Lord's Supper with us this morning. I'm going to give you a minute to pray and to reflect on Psalm 119, to think about the fixed nature of God's Word, to think about the salvation promised in God's Word, and then we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper together. So you take a moment, prepare your heart as we take the Lord's Supper.